Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5:38-48. This is the word of God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what, other, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Remain standing as we pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the Spirit within him that carried men's words along, that recorded the scriptures, and we pray that that same Holy Spirit would enlighten us, convict us as appropriate, encourage us, strengthen us, leave us better equipped and more inspired to love the Jesus that we read about here and love his commands. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Today we're going to focus on relaxing. And I want to tell you that God is against it. Now before you cancel your massage appointment this week, start feeling guilty of meeting friends for a nice lunch, or simply tune tune me out with a start like that, let's narrow the scope of this relaxing and what God's against. He's already told us, when it comes to relaxing, there's one time he's so clearly against it. It's relaxing the commands of Scripture. We've already learned that just in the last week. Matthew 5, 18, whoever relaxes one of the least commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. Jesus is against relaxing of his, of his commands. I think it was a problem back then, relaxing God's commands. But I was encouraged when I saw a sign at a church not too far from my house. I was sitting at the stoplight, and there on the electronic screen, it said, we take the Bible seriously. <laughs> I can get behind that, can't you? But the light was long enough that about five or eight seconds later, it flashed up the beginning of the sentence for that church's screen. We don't take the Bible literally. We take it seriously, a little different, hence the gas in the back of the room. 
We tend to be creative with teachings when we're not comfortable. That happened in past years, too. We, we tend to be ones that, that find ourselves perhaps creative when something's not to our liking about a teaching or just plain bothers us. Well, this is the start of what Jesus is talking about throughout this chapter 5. He's talking about a relaxing of God's commands, and he's against it. Let's begin by looking at verses 33 to 37. Let me read it again, Danielle, thanks for your reading of it. Let me just reinforce this section as we begin. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus begins, and he'll say this several times, you have heard it said to those of old. And certainly over the years, the religious teachers, the Jewish teachers, the rabbis, the scribes, had, had come up with an increasing number of explanations and, and rules and, and just different interpretations of the Old Testament law. Some of the time, I think this was definitely much less the case, they added to the law that in a way that made it even harder to uphold that. Think of the Sabbath day. Do you know how many laws there were in Jesus' day that the scribes and Pharisees had, had added to that basic command, that fifth commandment, do not, you know, to honor the Lord through the Sabbath day? Some say it's 613 laws that they had, had added to how you need to obey the Sabbath day. So much so that Jesus himself, God himself, who created the Sabbath day, didn't follow many of those and got into quite a few verbal uh, fights with the Pharisees. So there were times in which even the lawgiver, Jesus himself, didn't follow what they did because it was too onerous and it added beyond God's intention. But I think that was the exception. Most of the time, they got creative in ways that allowed some relaxing of what God intended, a relaxing of the teaching of the Old Testament. And that's why Jesus says, he is against the relaxing of the commands of the Old Testament. They got it wrong when it comes to these O's because they added so much explanation to it that in the end really allowed people to get around telling the truth. In brief, what they did is they divided O's into ones that I guess you could say you really meant and those you had some flexibility on. The ones you really meant you had to use God's name as part of that. I will be there. I will give that money. I swear by God's name, might be what they would say. But if you needed some flexibility, some have called it a second class kind of oath, you would say something like, I will do that. I swear by Jerusalem. I swear by the earth. I swear by my head that I will do that. And Jesus is saying, this is not right. This is not what, what the O's of the Old Testament, what it meant to be a truth teller. 
that you would manipulate God's instructions of the Old Testament in a way that sometimes you needed to be truthful and other times you didn't. Jesus said, speak the truth always. It's that simple. That's what he's saying. Now, some have over the years focused on the the portion of this that focuses on the oath part. But the thrust really is truth-telling much more than oath-taking. There are oaths in the Old Testament. Some have run with this and said that in the courtroom you should never take an oath. And I think that's something that some might uh, debate. But really, the focus of what Jesus said, he sums up at the very end there when he says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Relaxing of Scripture can have many forms. It can be the form of where some people just simply ignore scriptures they don't like. Some have said that they just simply will dismiss a command of scripture as outdated. Some, uh, was actually one of my daughters said to me, you know, one of the things I, I hear from people, especially people that don't hold to the Bible very much, is, oh, there's a whole bunch of translations. It's all kind of mixed up. And there's some that simply, like these Pharisees of old, Create such a convoluted interpretation that in the end it's hard to find the truth in it. Here's some quotes that I found helpful to me as I studied this that oaths really arise because men are liars. That a Christian's word should need no buttressing, no support with an oath to be able to stand for something, to be truthful. Spurgeon says it this way, a bad man can't be believed even if he takes an oath. A good man can be believed even if he doesn't take an oath. That's what Jesus was after. So how do we slink away from from being someone who is truthful, who speaks a yes when they mean yes, and speaks a no when they mean no? I think sometimes it may not just be the bold-faced lie, but actually the, the, the ways in which we're evasive, the ways in which we, we are just not quite as straightforward as we should be with our words. I confess, as I was studying this, I showed up at a meeting about a week or two ago, and the Holy Spirit convicted me. I showed up at the meeting, and I was a few minutes late. Indeed, the weather was a little off that day. Traffic may be a little heavier, and I remember just coming into the meeting a few minutes late and saying, oh, traffic and weather. Everybody kind of dismissed it. But the truth is, I had left late. Now, the the weather, yeah, it made me a little later. The weather and the traffic made me a little later. But you know what? My yes was not 100% yes in that case. I I was not truth-telling to the degree that if Jesus was in the crowd would have kind of given me the look. (laughs) Hey, you left three minutes before you knew the absolute ideal conditions would get you to that meeting on time, and you blamed it all on that. I think of my daughter, Clara, who, when she was about four years old, was struggling a little bit with her yes being a yes, her no being a no. Clara, did you? We asked her if she had done something. And with the most gorgeous little four-year-old girl's eyes, she looked up at Sandy and I and said, maybe. (laughs) We need to get away from the maybe when we know the answer is either yes or no. 
Speak the truth always. Always. It's that simple. But we move on from there to, to the portion of this sermon, that, that this Sermon on the Mount, that I think is just absolutely a startling, even astonishing teaching. Now, so much of the Sermon on the Mount is challenging, but we get to a place now where it's really impossible commands. We read verses like verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. When we read verses like verse 44, love your enemies, we're arriving at a place of impossible commands for us, isn't we? Aren't we? John Stott says it this way, here the sermon is both the most admired and the most resented. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. So let's look at it and see how we can overcome that. The background of this next part begins with that verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That dates back to certainly at least Exodus 21. There's some verses in Exodus that say this. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. But you know what? Even before Moses' day, about 1400 B.C., this had already been something that was codified in another code. The Hammurabi Code was found in 1901. We're going to put just a little picture of what you would see if you went to the Louvre Museum in Paris. The Hammurabi Code is, was found and is on this large black stone that is there in the Louvre. You can see someone next to it to just give you a little sense of how tall this stone was. It was, it was a code of, of courtroom ethics. And number 196 says... If a man destroys the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. If one breaks a bone, they shall break his bone. So this ancient code, 1800 B.C., because Hammurabi was a king in the region now of Iran, around 1800 B.C., was then repeated to some degree in Exodus, and really has been used to a large degree in different courtrooms throughout history. Go to the south wall of the Supreme Court and you'll see a sculpture that that includes Hammurabi right there in our own U.S. Supreme Court. So what is it about Scripture now adopting something that was several hundred years old prior to that? Well, some things are just known by common sense about our nature, isn't it? And one of the things that we all know is that when we have been wronged, there is a desire that starts at a very young age to retaliate. But not just retaliate, to retaliate in a way that someone gets more than you were harmed. When you're a little boy and you have a brother, do you ever kind of think, he just hit me, so i got to make sure I hit him about the same or maybe a little less. No, you want to pound him. You want to hit him harder back. There is a mindset in human nature that says, you knock out one of my teeth, I want to knock out all of yours. You broke some of my bones, I want to break all of yours. There is a spirit in all of us that wants vengeance and retaliation to go beyond the degree that we were harmed. And so these codes have recognized in human nature, and the scriptures uphold that truth 
that we need to set limits on retaliation. We need to, to restrict the degree to which somebody retaliates. And in the Old Testament, in Exodus, the context makes it clear. This is not for everyday living. This is not solving the dispute with your neighbor across the fence or, or your brother-in-law that frustrates you at Thanksgiving dinner. It was not on a personal level in the Old Testament that this teaching was to be carried out. This was something that was for the authorities in the Old Testament. So, so the problem with human nature is we want to go beyond what w- the harm that's been done, and we want to make it personal and carry that out ourselves. So there's certain examples about how this is the case. Because Jesus is not dismissing this teaching of an eye for an eye. He quotes the Old Testament basically exactly and saying, this is what you've been told. What he is pushing back against is the mindset that this is something that you need to seek vengeance. You need to seek retaliation. And you need to do it often on a personal level. Make sure it happens. He was pushing against, back against that. And these examples show us that. What are these examples? Well, first of all, a backhanded slap. Someone strikes you on the right cheek. Now, how many of you are right-handed? If you raise your hands, it would be about 90 or 91%. And if you slap somebody in the face, you're going to hit their left cheek. So it was Jesus saying, somebody hits you on the right cheek, it means someone slapped you, almost like a real good backhand, against your right cheek. That was a particularly insulting insult. The rabbis of the day said, someone hits you with the back of the hand, the insult is such that the fine is double if you went to court in Jesus' day, as opposed to doing the exact same hit with an open hand. It was something akin to a significant societal insult. We can't relate to that very much, but we can relate to somebody. Can you imagine, say you got in a a fender better with somebody, you came up and hit their back fender, you both get out, and you think it's just going to be an occasion to exchange license and registration and insurance information. And someone just comes out, and they not only are just cursing and just as angry as all get out, but they walk right up and look you in the face and spit in your face. That's a different level, isn't it? All the words aren't fun to hear. Might even be scaring us, but there is an insult we would receive. We wouldn't forget about that for 50 years. And spit in the face. That's the kind of thing that this backhanded insult would have meant in Jesus' day, according to scholars. And so he's saying, someone does that to you, this this societal insult of that degree, publicly, you're supposed to be having an attitude that would be willing to even turn the other cheek. Jesus expands. What about a tunic and cloak? We don't really think about a tunic and cloak so much, but the tunic was, was more your inner garment, what you wore next to the skin while your cloak would have been what kept you warm, your outer garment. In the first century, it was such that you could not sue somebody who had wronged you, whether you're doing it rightly or wrong. You couldn't sue somebody and ask for their cloak because that kept them warm at night. And Jesus says, you go to court, whether it's just or it's an evil person suing you without proper cause, 
and they're asking for your tunic, you ask, you, you be willing, you have an attitude that would not just give up your tunic, but be willing to give up what's protected actually even by law, your cloak that would keep you warm. And the second mile, it was fun to just kind of Google that second mile. I had some of these business articles come up. The second mile is, you know, going to the coffee pot and refilling it for somebody, you know, and just to, to build relationships at work. Give me a break. That's not what a second mile was about in the first century. It dates back to even the Persians before the first century and the Romans occupying there. The second mile would refer to what a Roman soldier or even soldiers of previous armies would do, that they would just commandeer one of the countrymen and say, carry this, a thousand paces. That's what the law said, a thousand paces, which was roughly a mile if you had a long stride. Carry my baggage. Carry whatever I have on, on, that I'm having to transport. So just think of Simon of Cyrene. He didn't sign up to carry Jesus' cross. The Roman soldiers said, carry this cross. More often, it was just the soldier's baggage. And so Jesus said, don't just do what the law or the custom required. Have an attitude that, that so forbears begrudging. So, so puts away the, the anger and resentment towards that authority that has inconvenienced you, that, that, is, that is ruling your land, that you would get to a thousand paces and even ask the question, can I go another thousand for you? I was listening to a book on tape recently on Audible. You know, Audible's just books, and almost always it's a professional reader reading the book. And not that I've listened to just dozens and dozens and dozens, but I'd never heard somebody in the midst of reading a book literally say, this reader literally says, I want to go off script and add something here. I, I wrote it down. I actually rewound it. So you, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. I want to go off script and add something here. This is on Audible. This professional service reading a book. You know why it didn't bother me a bit? Because she had written the book. She had written the book. When you write the book, you're allowed to expand on what you meant when people aren't quite so sure. You can add an illustration. You can, you can, you can adjust what people are interpreting in that if they're off base when you wrote the book. And that's what Jesus is doing with these. Yeah, God's Spirit wrote this eye for an eye in the Old Testament, but you, you have run with it and taken an approach to it that is distorted and, frankly, inaccurate to what God's Spirit intend. And now the author corrects the thinking and the approach. Doesn't correct the law because they had quoted it accurately, but corrects how they were handling that. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus corrects their errant thinking. Because their thinking was, if I am wronged, they're going to get what's coming to them. If I'm wrong, it's my duty to get paybacks, teeth or money or public shaming. Jesus corrects their errant thinking that kind of had a mindset of, if I'm forced by the authorities to do something, whether it's pay a fine, <clears throat> whether it's pay my taxes, or render service to the government, I'm certainly not going to give one bit beyond what is required. And frankly, I'm going to probably resent it all the way up to the finish line of whatever is asked of me. 
Jesus says, do not resist the evil one. In fact, Jesus said, here's what Stott says, it's so helpful. Jesus said, our Christian duty is to so completely forbear revenge that we even allow the evil person to double the injury. The push is not to insist on more injury. I don't think the the teaching is to insist on our rights being violated, but the point is to have a spirit, a mindset in which we are willing, if God so directs. It's what Jesus did, and Peter points out in 1 Peter chapter 2. To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Listen to this example. So that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. So what to do? What do we do with something that seems so impractical for us to make progress, so so difficult to measure up. I mean, after all, we take this path that Jesus is suggesting, aren't we going to just be taken advantage of all the time? Are we going to be penniless? We're giving away all our money to everyone who asks? We're just going to be beaten up all the time? We're just going to surrender any sense of self-respect? I love Oswald Changers, you know, from his utmost, from his highest. He was Scottish. I do think he made it to the United States in the early 1900s. But he must have known something about the gun-slinging, never-back-down cowboys of the West out here where we live. Because listen to what he says. The natural person thinks if you do not hit back, it's because you're a coward. But supernaturally, to not hit back is a manifestation of God in you. Both have the same appearance outwardly. Make getting your rights secondary to God getting his way. That's the message. To make getting your rights secondary to God getting his way. Think about it. We do the impossible with his help. But we're reminded by the fuller teaching of Scripture, Jesus did talk back to the Pharisees when they were in error. That Jesus reminded Pilate, you'd have no authority had the Father not given it to you. Paul himself appealed to his own citizenship, his Roman citizenship, to get him out of an unjust imprisonment. The point is we don't ignore our rights. We don't seek out to be unjustly treated. Rather, we make getting our rights secondary to God getting his way. The last portion of our passage is about our enemies, about our neighbors. You have heard that it was said, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now the phrase, hate your enemies, is never in the Old Testament. And it was difficult for some years to even find an example in the writings of that day in which it really made clear that there was a teaching of hate your enemies. There certainly was a teaching in the Old Testament of loving our neighbors. Listen to Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. Listen to the same Leviticus 19, referring to the stranger. You shall love him as yourself. 
Listen to Proverbs 24. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. But the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they were found in the 40s, recorded not just large portions of the Old Testament, but they recorded some of of the way in which this group of Jewish people who lived by the Dead Sea, not much more than about 20 miles from Jerusalem, contemporaries of Jesus, what they had to say about enemies. They actually took a vow, an oath, morning and evening, that they would say every day, and it said this, I will hate forever the unjust. So Jesus was aware that, that there were a teaching in his day that said, yes, love your, na- your neighbor, but hate your enemies. And our neighbor in God's way of thinking is all that we have contact with, isn't it? There's never a time in which neighbor is, is, is narrowed in its scope. So when you think of the circle of neighbors for you, make sure within that circle is enemies. Those that you disagree pretty strongly with politically. Those in which have wronged you, never apologized, never made it right. Make sure within the circle of your neighbor, you're thinking of those that have hurt people you care about. The circle of your neighbors includes the circle we would think of, and we do often think of as our enemies. Your neighbor is your enemy, so love your neighbor. Listen to how Spurgeon says, when we become a Christian, we are no longer enemies to any. We are no longer enemies to any. I want you to think of Jesus' example, how how he combated in his own culture the the thinking, the culture, the the mindset that would not do what he's asked us to do. He's told us to resist the evil, resist the person who is evil. He's told us to love our enemies, even pray for them. Think about what Jesus combated in his own life. When he was reviled, as Peter told us, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So, he would have grown up with a thinking of, we don't talk to Samaritans, those half-breeds. And yet this Jesus, this Savior of ours, in a very public place, the town well, his disciples found him talking in John 4 to a Samaritan woman. And about these Samaritans that he would have been raised to hate and at the very least disdain, he told one of his most famous stories, and he made a Samaritan good. In fact, he made that good Samaritan the hero of the story. He would have been around people, almost all the people around him that would have said, women are beneath us men. And whether they were rednecks or rabbis, that was the teaching of the men of that day. And yet Jesus welcomed women into the circle of his students that traveled with him and learned of him. He honored a woman with being the very first human being to see him after his resurrection, Mary Magdalene. He healed them. He didn't just heal the men. He healed the women as well. And Jesus, the only person who chose his ancestors, when you're God, you can choose your ancestors, chose women who were impressive as they shined bright for God but had some sketchy backgrounds. 
Jesus chose to have Ruth in his background, who, though admirable in character, was from the Moabites across the other side of the Dead Sea, a group that the Jews clearly looked down on. He chose Rahab, the prostitute, to be a great-great-great-grandmother. Jesus would have heard as he grew up, we keep our distance from those beneath us. And yet this Jesus spent time with tax collectors. He even asked one of them to be one of his disciples and record a gospel that we're reading from right now. Matthew. Jesus welcomed and interfaced with those who had leprosy. And it would be Matthew just a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 8 that would notice, I'm sure it was Matthew noticing because it must have startled him. Not that Jesus healed the man who came to him with leprosy. Jesus just kind of did that stuff. But that before he healed the man in Matthew 8 verse 3 it says he stretched out his hand and touched him. Jesus was one that would have heard, we hate these Roman occupiers. But when a centurion, a Roman centurion came to him pleading that he would save his servant's life, Jesus said, I'll come to your home. And when that centurion then said, you don't need to come because I know you can just say the word, Jesus looked around and said, to Jewish people about a Roman occupier, I've not heard such great faith in all of Israel. When Jewish enemies arrested him and took him to the high priest's court, Jesus lived out his teaching. He surrendered retaliation and the rights as he could have cried out for revenge against them. But he fulfilled Isaiah's words from 800 years before. Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike. I gave my cheeks to those who would pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And when those Jewish enemies would turn Jesus over to Roman enemies and they would march him to Calvary, the spikes would be pounded into his hands and into his, into his feet. When the cross was lifted up and dropped into place, jarring his bones, did Jesus revile them, call down curses on them? He lived out his own teaching, and he prayed for those that were persecuting him. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. As one person said, even the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies. So you say, how can I live this way? These are impossible commands to live. How can I resist the one who is evil? How can I love my enemies if this is the standard of a follower of Jesus Christ? How can I live impossible commands? Then I would say to you, it's time to die. It's time to die. George Mueller in the 1800s, well known for his faith, in a children's home that had hundreds of children for many years, well known for his Christ-like service. His surrender was asked once, what is the secret of your service to Jesus? 
Here's what he said. There was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller, his opinions, preference, tastes, and will. I died to the world, its approval, its censure. I died to the approval and blame even of my brethren, my friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. It's much like Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It really is the only way to do impossible commands like this. To die to self. To die and surrender, as Mueller said, all of these things. To make Jesus your Savior and determine with his help to live this life according to the way that he says we need to live it. So I end with this. Can you say, there was a day when I died. When I died to my opinions and my preferences. I died to my tastes and will. A day I died to the world, its approval. A day I died to the approval and blame even of friends. A day I resolved to only show myself approved unto God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus' teaching. I thank you for impossible commands. And may, with your strength, only possible with your strength, we would live them according to your desires. We pray for a week ahead in which we honor the name of our Savior, and we pray you dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.